0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hague Journal of Diplomacy podcast. My name is Ilan Madhavji, and I will be your host. Today, we're going to dive into sports diplomacy. Uh, And today, to do that with us, we have Professor Stuart Murray of Bond University, who wrote back in 2013 for the journal a piece and as well special edited the, the issue on sports diplomacy. And since 2013, a lot's been happening in the field, and we thought now would be seven years later... A great time to touch base with Stuart and to see how the field and himself has developed. Uh, in the meantime, he has been involved practically and academically in the field with setting up the Sports Diplomacy Foundation, and next to that has released a book called Sports Diplomacy Origins Theory and Practice, which is considered to be a seminal piece in the field uh, describing the, the background and basis for what has now become an academic field of study. Uh, Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. How are you?
1: I'm, I'm very well, Ellen. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's lovely to, to talk about um, this, this concept. Uh, hopefully, a new, new array group as well. Thanks.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Now, sports diplomacy, I think, you know, at least when I first saw uh, that title, um, I could perhaps, you know, venture a guess as to what it could be about, but it was certainly a new topic for me uh, on its own. So if I can imagine that for anyone listening... Um, they might also feel the same way. So when we're talking about sports sports diplomacy what are we actually talking?
1: It's we're, we're talking about a new term to describe a a very very old practice so the the conscious use of sport to to bring people institutions and the the political bodies they form closer together and and so it's, it's simply we can we can think about 100 very obvious examples as soon as you start talking about the examples people say oh yeah i get it so we can we can think about uh, the ancient Olympiad, you know, is the, the low-hanging fruit to pick up. Uh, where where sport was used, there was a a, a tournament called the, the Olympiad. It was one of four crown games. There was a big tournament every year, uh the Delphic games and um, across the Greek world. And sport was used as a a way to bring or to promote pan Hellenism, to bring people closer together. We had the Olympic truce. So you know while Sparta, Athens were fighting for two months when this tournament was on, people could travel safely and war was suspended. So immediately we see this, this power of sport to, to bring peace to, uh, to warring, warring nations, to act as a tool for conflict resolution, and to show people that, while well, there might be political differences, there are other, uh, other things that bind us together. These universal languages that Nelson Mandela uh, and many others spoke about this, this unique power of sport uh, that I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss as we go, go, go through.
0: Okay, so you've thank you for that. You you uh millennia in this answer, uh, which which doesn't surprise me. Um, and uh, I think you've you, you raise a lot of great questions as well. But what I what I want to maybe tie into first, and you know, on the podcast we don't usually get too personal, but I think we might scratch the surface here because um, as a academic yourself, you're in the field of diplomacy and in international affairs and at one point you decide uh, for whatever reason or another I'm gonna start looking at sport with my diplomatic lens uh, how do you come about that thought how does that happen
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a really really good question I think there's a, a couple of quick answers. I, I wrote my, my thesis on Theory, diplomatic theory, which is is about epistemology. It's about asking what we know of diplomacy and what we don't know of diplomacy. Uh, thanks to um, you know, I, I wrote in theory for a while, but only people like Paul Sharp and James Derderian were interested in that. I had a readership of two, uh, so <laughs> it wasn't a very popular topic. I watched, I watched Jan Melson, uh, Brian Hawking, Paul Sharp, Donna Lee many other great theorists uh, that you would have, have read and your, your uh, listeners would have read, um, experimenting with new types of diplomacy, new ways to understand it. We had public, digital, uh, secret theory and so on, but no one looked at sport. And I, I just couldn't quite believe this. It was absolutely low-hanging fruit for a theorist. Um, like you, Ellen, I, I'm a sports lover. Uh, I come from a sporting family uh, also. My, my father was a professional football player. Uh, he holds the club record um, for the most consecutive appearances in the Scottish Premier League. Wow. Uh, he played for 17 years uh, and he went on to coach and so on. Um, his brother played and my uncle Tommy played for Glasgow Rangers and, uh, in the 1978 World Cup. So I grew up uh, around football and I was a good player but I had a very bad ankle and uh, also um, a very powerful, successful father who cast a big shadow... <laughs> so quickly when i was 18 19 i started to think of other ways to do diplomacy and sport and and eventually as i say i realize i'm murdering the question here but uh, long story short ellen 2011 we uh, i did a paper at berlin at the intercultural diplomacy the icd in berlin to test it out it went down very well i published that paper uh, with diplomacy and statecraft i started working with to other academics, it's really important that you, you generate, uh, you have colleagues in your team. Uh, so Simon Roth, Jeff Pigman, and then uh, Hague Journal of Diplomacy approached us. Uh, Jan Mellison and Paul Sharp said, why don't you do a special edition? And, uh, and I got very, very excited about that because it was a chance to do proof of concept uh, to our academic peers. So uh, again, uh, there's not never a short answer talking to a Scotsman about sport and diplomacy, but I hope that was a uh,
0: no that was that was perfect and and once again we spend many years with that answer and and I yeah I mean it makes sense it's a it's a combination of of two passions of yours and I guess um I guess when you were growing up if you know professional football wasn't going to be the route academia is a solid plan B so, um, <laughs> it makes sense that, that you didn't hold on to those, you didn't sort of let go of those passions, rather.
1: Ellen, okay, who do you? What sport do you follow, and who are you? Interested
0: in? So, I I also grew up in a very staunch football family. Um, uh, I don't have any uh, professional footballers in my midst, but uh, my my dad uh, grew up in England, uh, and so he's a staunch Liverpool supporter. So that trickles down. Uh, and then, oh. obviously, touching on my. Uh, my Canadian roots, I grew up uh, with ice hockey as well. And being from originally born in Montreal, that's, uh, that's something that's sort of, it's in the water over there. So uh, you don't let go, but um, yeah, so that's actually, that's why, you know, when I saw the special issue amongst the catalog in the Hague Journal of Diplomacy, I was like, sports diplomacy. Okay, that, I mean, I like sports, diplomacy is kind of cool. Let's see what that's about, I guess. So maybe, yeah, my, my history with the topic is not too far off from yours, I would say. Uh, which brings me to my next question, actually. In terms of, you know, when you just sort of braze through uh, what you've written on the topic, you like to talk about traditional and non-traditional uh, sides of sports diplomacy. And I think this gives a good picture to the sort of the the basic outlook of of sports diplomacy. So when you're talking about traditional and non-traditional, well, uh, well, what are you trying to illustrate here?
1: That's, that's a, a, again, a, a, an interesting question. I think when we say traditional sports diplomacy, it's how... How sport is seen through the embassy window. It's, it's a, a good quote by Wilson Dizzard uh, talking about how how diplomats see the world, you know, through this very parochial, traditional lens, where sport is co-opted uh, to serve distinct national interests. And and, and I, I use the word co-opted intentionally. It's a very uh, sport is used and abused and exploited to serve government ends. Uh, so that's the traditional side, and the the non-traditional side is. It's sort of flipping the concept on, on its head you know what does in the first sense we say what does uh what does diplomacy have to say about sport and then vice versa we say what does sport have to say about diplomacy and it's the the second category that gets really interesting and sport it turns out is a form of diplomacy it's a form of mediating estrangement it's a form of uh, promoting a message it's a, a means short of war it's a dispute resolution it increases contact between separate groups i could go on and on and on and, and again uh, this has been proven uh, through the anthropo- uh, anthropological record we have evidence of that in in ancient australia 30,000 years ago of specific games being used that actually mimic war uh, so it's uh, it's it's sort of like george orwell's idea of war minus the shooting I suppose, and Orwell was referring to Dynamo Moscow's trip to the UK in 1947, which was heavily politicized in that era. So immediately when I'm mentioning that, I'm sure you're thinking of the fascist games, perhaps in 1936, uh, Mussolini's black shirt winning the World Cup in 1938 and doing the Hitler salute. And that's the, the ways that we can see... Uh, the relationship between sport and diplomacy, but very very briefly, um, the whole point of theory is that it grows, Ellen. Uh, so in, in my book, um, we I introduced four different theoretical lenses, uh, traditional sports diplomacy, network sports diplomacy, sport as diplomacy, and then the really weird ones, uh, sports anti-diplomacy, where sport can be used as a tool to drive people apart uh, in that sense. So I'd be happy to explain each of these, but we'd be here all night. So I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on Saturday as we can continue our discussion.
0: Sure. Th- thank you for that, that great little uh, great little tidbit and, and peek into your book as well. Um, and I think I'll, I'll actually will pick up on, on, on something you mentioned. You talked about sports and diplomacy and their two sort of cultures or mindsets. And this is also something that presents itself and other work in the field where you talk about sport, you know, which is, yeah, it's this, like you said, this type of warfare, actually, right? It's, it's combative. It's emotionally overt. Um, it's expressive. It's literally on show. And then you have diplomacy, which is, traditionally speaking, discretionary, under the table, more subtle. So um, I find it interesting. You have these two things that, uh, in many ways, are very opposed, and yet we now find them together. So how do you reconcile these two, com- like, conflicting cultures when you combine these two worlds?
1: I think it's, it's, you you experienced exactly what I experienced when I thought thought about it initially, Ellen, how on earth can you, you know, growing up in a city like Glasgow in Scotland, where it's divided between Catholic and Protestant uh, religions that follow different football teams, it's incredibly violent. I grew up in the 1980s in Scotland during the casual era, where there was a lot of violence and hooliganism. And so you're absolutely right. It can look that way, um, uh, certainly in first, first uh, glance, but then when you start to think about it a, a little bit differently, um, we, can, we can think, um, you know, the diplomats and sports people share a lot of similarities. You know, both are representatives of their, their state and international relations system. Both uh, epitomize this elite stratum of society uh, both are uh, patriotic individuals and um, to serve the state, whether you're a diplomat or a sports person, is a great honor. Um, just as sports people compete with opponents in stadiums around the world, diplomats compete in great contests involving rules, secret plays, tactics, spectators, opponents, and large forums and exotic far-flung locales. So there's, there's lots of similarities actually between the vocation It's so much so that uh, the East Germans used to refer to their sports people as diplomats in tracksuits. But obviously, the East Germans, uh, there's a a story where they uh, basically practiced almost vivisection in their athletes in terms of drug abuse and promoting them to win. So it's it's an unfortunate association, but I I think if you look at what a diplomat is um, in terms of personality traits and what a sports person is, uh, there's not too uh, there's not too many uh, dissimilarities why we refer to someone like Roger Federer's, Federer as an ambassador for his sport uh, so I, th- I think you're right but th- the vision, that this brutal version of sport is the that's why I put this sport anti-diplomacy uh, you know if you watch Ultimate Fighting for example is it diplomatic to watch two women uh, bashing each other's faces in, you know I, I don't think so but that's a form of a form of sport it's a broad pantheon we have to consider uh, just just like human life
0: okay yeah though that i i, I couldn't agree more and um i'm curious actually you now you, you talked about like the athletes or sports people uh being agents of diplomacy like wearing a second hat if you will they probably don't even know they have it on yeah. so how does then does that mobilize itself to the actual goal because often you know when you're talking about diplomacy or sports diplomacy and when you start touching on issues like soft power and trying to convey messages to what end basically sometimes is the question so in sports um you mentioned the you know, the nazi olympics or um various political uh, ideologies that have mixed themselves in, in sporting events so how does this connection between soft power perhaps even propaganda how does that find itself being actually practiced through sport
1: that's, a, that's a, a terrific observation. And again, when we're thinking about sport, it's the, one of the first mistakes we make is we think of it as a monolith, you know, that sport is something uh, that we can touch when it's extremely complex. You know, it's from primary schools up to amateur level to the golfer hacking his way around uh, the golf course on Saturday for pleasure. And uh, parenthesis, of course, I, I speak of my own golf swing. And right up to the... These Uber, Uber representatives and superheroes like uh, Usain Bolt and Leo Messi, Jess Jess Fishlock, the Welsh uh, soccer player, Megan Rappin You know these these very powerful people, the the Colin Kaepernick's of the world, uh, Eric Reid, the Black Lives Matter movement. These these type of uh, episodes suggest that there's a, a separate form of of sports diplomacy that's practiced only by sports people for sports people and And when we speak about this, we can think, what do they represent? And they they represent an international society of sport. This system of diplomacy that's required day in, day out to to make international sporting competition possible. And we just, we haven't studied it. We haven't identified it. And it's a fascinating uh, level. If you think of Apadurai's work where he talked about the global landscapes of finance scapes, technoscapes, and so on. He did not include sportscapes. And I, I refer to Wolfram Writers' uh, use of that term. Uh, but this global sportscape is a fascinating uh, term. And I think that's where sport is moving towards. The traditional stuff, as you mentioned, government's uh, aggressively using sport. And I'm, I'm referring to perhaps uh, 2022 um, Qatar World Cup, uh, men's football tourney, uh, China, uh, the 2022 Winter Olympics. Ourself in Australia, we have the 2023 uh, Women's World Cup, which is a huge opportunity uh, to spread perhaps different messages. So I, I think, uh, Ellen, that they they all they all exist. Um, when someone, a friend of mine who's actually co-founded the Sports Diplomacy Foundation, uh, Mr. Trent Smythe, uh, who's Secretary of the Consular Corps in Melbourne and Director of Formula One in Melbourne, you know, a, a classic archetypal sports diplomat. Um, he was asked by a journalist, uh, "What is sports diplomacy?" And he said, "Typical diplomat." He said, "It's whatever you want it to be."
0: <laughs> okay, I, I think maybe that's perhaps the best answer of all. It, it is, especially in such a, a, a you know, a fresh take on on something that's been around for so long. Um, it is, in fact, what we make of it. And I, I've actually found it curious. So you, you've mentioned, you've mentioned social movements uh, when you, you know, when you mention names like Colin Kaepernick. That makes me curious because to a degree, a lot of the historical cherry-picked cases we've talked about um, are are talking about this top-down infusion of uh, soft power. So the Nazi regime wants to put on show for the world their capabilities and how they run their affairs, and thus the Olympics is the perfect way to achieve that. Or um, there's, there's even lots written about the 2012 Olympics in London, where They wanted to update the the British image to the world. They wanted to move away from the past and say, this is Britain of today. Um, And that's top down. But then something like Colin Kaepernick, well, that's, that's effectively one man on his own deciding he wants to make a statement. And let's be honest, it hasn't exactly gone over well with his league, let alone his government, to a great degree. So now this is more of a bottom-up approach to using sport to convey a message, even a diplomatic message. And then you have the same issue if we put this under the umbrella of the Black Lives Matter movement. You have the Premier League when they reopened after Corona on the back of every single shirt, it said Black Lives Matter. And that's a top-down approach to the same issue. So um, does it take a life of its own to a degree? And how how does that work from the bottom up if sports diplomacy can be co-opted by the individual actor at the bottom rather than some purveyor of diplomacy from the top?
1: Yeah, a, a wide wide range of topics to, to answer there. The, the first thing I would say is I, I don't think the, the Nazi Olympics are an example of hard power. I think this was a, almost like a, 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 an overture towards what was obviously a, a massive amount of a, a ideological or, or the abuse of sport for national purposes. And we, we have to remember uh, the, the the concept of nationalism and the concept of international sport go hand in hand. They both emerged at exactly the same time. Uh, that's why Baron Coubertin was so keen to uh, re, re, uh, reinvigorate or reinvent the, the ancient Olympiad. I think that the Kaepernick question, uh, the, the case you talk about, is absolutely fascinating because here we're seeing something very, very different. Normally when a, a sports person speaks out, Against his sponsors, against his team, or against his—in this case, his president—his career's over. Uh, his or her career is over. The sponsors disappear. Um, but Kaepernick has done something uh, a little bit different. In fact, that did happen to him initially, and then this huge social movement got behind uh, this athlete. Who's a—if you look at somebody like Kaepernick, what is his power? I—I I don't think it's soft power. Soft power is a—a term uh, certainly worth. I think we're trying to move away from, it's a neoliberal Western term. Uh, China doesn't accept it. Saudi Arabia doesn't like this term. So it's, a. Uh, I think sports diplomacy, we were finding that it was getting lumped under the soft power umbrella. And we don't like the concept of power. You know, the, this idea of whether it's co-option or coercion, you're still compelling another to your, your will. So we try to separate from that. It, someone like Colin Kaepernick's an example of, Exactly what we need. Uh, all the met, the problems you mentioned, Ellen, uh, such as Black Lives Matter, social movements, climate change—you uh, name it. I, I don't care. We need as many people working in this stuff as possible. We're we are screwed. Uh, and the amount of—if uh, if you think about the, the Anthropocene era and the challenges that are coming down, this is this is just the taste of it. Um, racism, COVID, pandemics, uh, overpopulation gender inequality, there's a huge host of, of problems. Uh, the biggest one is transhumanism, This, this, these bunch of idiots that are advocating for the end uh, of human species, This to, to change nature. We need as many people as possible uh, advocating for good human values, such as teamwork, discipline, virtue, uh, representation, good social causes. And sports people are this untapped resource in terms of... Uh, uh, sports ambassadors. How, how often have you asked, what, what does that term actually mean? Who do these people represent? Uh, what do they say? I, I've never heard Leo Messi, who's a UN Goodwill ambassador. I've never heard them speak. What, what, what's he all about? Uh, David Beckham, he takes his shirt off, ponzis around Africa. What, what do these people do? With training, with power, uh, learning from people like Kaepernick, who's the long, the, you know, a generation of athlete activists and somebody like Muhammad Ali, uh, John Carlos, Tommy Smith in Mexico, 1968, Althea Gibson, the, the first African-American to play in the ladies uh, women's uh, tennis tour, Jesse Owens, who served as a, an ambassador for America in the 1950s, while there was still segregation uh, going on back home. These, these people are different. They They're heroic individuals. Um, They're very authentic, they're very real, they're very powerful people. We need to study them, we need to learn from them, and we need to uh, generate 100 million more of them. I I couldn't
0: agree more. And um, I think I I would, you know, based off our conversation and content, I I would assume you and I often have, um, and and probably for many people listening, I think think we would see this in the same way. And um, you can see the, yeah, Kaepernick's a great example of, the impact one person can have, based off one gesture, one action. Um, But there's, uh, just if I could play devil's advocate, not that, um, not devil's advocate on the values, but perhaps devil's advocate on the mechanism of sport to achieve these goals. So I'm sure there would be some who would say, sport is my escape. I I watch whatever sport it is to escape from the the day-to-day to get away from the political garbage and the bad news or whatever is out there. Uh, And in a way for many sport is this this pure holy monolith as you said before, right? Um, So then how how does diplomacy react perhaps to this maybe even inherently apolitical nature of sport despite the fact that it must convey some sort of charged message?
1: It is a again a very interesting interesting point. I think there's this ideal conception of sport um, that it's it's it is something holy. It's something hallowed. It's exactly embodied in, in Nelson Mandela's very very famous famous quote. And I'm, I'm just going to pull this up while we're while we're speaking um, because it's a famous uh, quote. Uh, he he says sport has. This is Nelson Mandela speaking in 2001 at the Laureus Awards in Monaco. Right. You know, so he says, sport has the power to change the world. It has the power to inspire, it has the power to unite people in a way that little else does. Sport can awaken hope where where there was previously only despair. Sport speaks to people in a language they can understand, end quote. He is absolutely right, um, but he's also absolutely wrong at the same time. Uh, Sport has a power, but so too does a 57 megaton nuclear bomb. Uh, sport stops when war begins. you know these so sport has a power, uh, but this type of ideal statement is is problematic. It, Mandela describes an end, he describes a utopia. he just forgot to tell us how to get there. typical politician and uh, so what we need to do what sports diplomacy is all about is about pathways finding finding maps uh, on that that way sport of course can be still hallowed and revered. And um, you might have read uh, Nick Hornby's book, uh, Fever Pitch, about the the delight or the, the religious nature of a fan supporting Arsenal football club. Um, and it can be all of these things. And I, I don't mean when we talk about sports ambassadors that we are tapping these guys on the shoulder after they finish playing and saying, Oh, you know, you need to talk about climate change or uh, saving the grey rhino in Western Africa. That's That's not what we're saying. We're saying that sport has a uh, all this power outside of it um, that's untapped. I'm a huge sports fan. uh, One of the things uh, I find about the movement towards e-sports and this obsession with entertainment that traditional sports must demonstrate, I I find it dreadful because I can't go to a soccer match with my father and my brother uh, and watch a dreadful game of football, 0-0 on a windy day in Scotland, uh, drinking Govro and eating pies and bonding with my, my family. That's sport to me. Uh, so, you know, it's I think it can be everything. And we need to we need to remember what's really, really special about sport are these types of experiences. Uh, the voices that you the most important people in sport are the voices that we do not hear. And that's the players, uh, the coaches, uh, the, the people that love the game, the, the volunteers that turn up uh, week in, week out. And that's what one of the research projects we're doing right now is It's called Putting the Sports Back in Sports Diplomacy. Uh, And it's about listening to the sports people and and players especially, helping them, training them the way we train diplomats, uh, taking the rough edges off them and harnessing their power. Uh, And again, Ellen, uh, we really, really need to innovate. We need some really fresh ideas. Uh, We're in trouble, man. We're in real trouble and, and these people can help us. And we need them, we need our heroes. off the the pitch as much Mm. as we do on them. And last thing I'll say, I know I'm going on like a broken record here. uh, It's about retired sports people. You know, these, if if you think about somebody like my, uh, my dad's best friend, a man called Tom Forsyth. He played for Glasgow Rangers for 16 years. He played in the 1978 World Cup in Argentina. He is a, a colossus, an absolute hero. I was at his testimonial match when he retired. Uh, long story short we went back to the house afterwards he was wandering around the garden in a daze this this incredible hero and I said are you okay and he said what do I do when the crowd stops singing my name son that was his statement and this man this very powerful man went on to work as a to delivering newspapers for a living uh, to feed his family and how many amazing talented people do we just lobbing the in the The graveyard afterwards Uh, so we we need to really if we want to use sport uh, we need to uh, listen to sport that's what public diplomacy is all about is it not just listening in the first place there you go another another rich answer for you (laughs) yeah
0: you're 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 making my job easy and difficult at the same time I think um no you, you you raise a couple of good points I think we yeah it is going back to it being what we make of it, yeah, maybe we do need to reinvent the idea of what it means to be an athlete or a sports person and and actually perhaps juice the potential that you have as someone even at the end of your career. Um, that doesn't mean one is not in a position to to perhaps champion ideas off the pitch, so to speak. And you did talk about something that I find very interesting and I do want to know more about, which is this concept of esports. Perhaps is, the, is this the next frontier for sports diplomacy? Because we're talking about um, an industry that is massive, probably bigger than most people think. Um, but at the same time, eSports has this weird nature where it's, is it inherently linked perhaps to, uh, you know, this uh, national identity that traditional sports would be or a city, even a city identity? Not really, because I can sit in my living room and, and I can put on a stream and, and watch uh watch a competition from anywhere in the world and it's just me watching um and perhaps the stars of that industry are less linked to um this traditional club mentality so what is what is esports actually going to do for sports diplomacy?
1: well you're maybe asking the wrong man you know I, i've just told you that my idea of sport is pie bovro family and dreadful dreadful soccer um, and <laughs> <laughs> i it would be remiss to to ignore this this brontosaurus in the room, uh, you're absolutely absolutely right. The data around esports, the the speed at which it's grown, uh, I think there's the, the stat that's always thrown around it's bigger than movies, rock concerts, and something else for under 18 year olds, and it's a huge disruptive uh, te- technology and activity. And um, I, I was about to say, you know, put on my flat cap and say it's not it's not sport anyway, but. Um, we, we consider cheese rolling a sport. We consider chess a sport. Uh, and where you are, uh, tractor pulling is very big in the, in the Netherlands. I still don't know what that is. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, if, if it makes you happy, if it, it gets you active, if it keeps you engaged, um, then that's a good thing. And I think esports is is very, very important for perhaps uh, people that don't fit into that traditional club mentality. You know, if you're less able-bodied, for example, um, in some societies uh, where there's there's they're overly patriarchal and maybe this is a way that a, a young girl in Iran can can participate through uh, new disruptive uh, social media, for example. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And we just um, shameless plug. Um, we just wrote a paper called uh, "Esports Diplomacy." I think it's called from uh, Gold Rush to. Sustain- Gold Rush to sustainable development, or some, something like that. We wrote it a while back, and it, it's in, it's going to be published in Sport and Society uh, quite soon. And it was a it was three academics: one who loves esports, one who questions it, shall we say, myself, <laughs> and a couple of and this young academic um, that just did his PhD in diplomacy. And it was we, we we came up with a couple of conclusions. This is amazing, and um, but already it's being politicized. Uh, already China for example that owns Tencent is doing funny things with its athletes and um, Australia's investing heavily in it as a as a branding tool and um, football clubs are investing in it I, I don't know I think I find esports it's driven by commerce it's driven by eyeballs uh, how many people you can get watching and um, there's big big firms involved in this uh, as well so I, I think I, it's early in the game to use a sporting analogy end of the first quarter. Let's, let's see what happens. But again, I'm, I'm all for it as long as it, it connects people and uh, just don't get me started on reality versus uh virtual reality. or we will be here all night.
0: Okay. So I think maybe, maybe that's a, that's a topic for the next, the next podcast we record uh, seven years later uh, to see what what came of that. But Yuri, yeah, I think you're right. It, it does perhaps, you know, as, uh, for people who who didn't perhaps grow up or have the traditional sporting structure around them who can't place themselves in, in the boxes perhaps we can yeah it does provide an interesting avenue and this maybe brings me to my my last question before we conclude um, and it's one I think uh, you know I find myself often asking people who are academics in, in a field like diplomacy uh, we often talk about how the academic thought or the theory translates itself into practice and I think with sports diplomacy that's kind of interesting particularly because how the practice manifests itself so as you know someone who is a an academic of of sports diplomacy how would you like it uh, to to see like what you're doing the ideas you're playing with how would you see like to see that trickle down into practice
1: in the years to come? Um, I'm so glad you asked that question and just for your audience that this is not a setup Uh, that's you've saved the best the best question for last. Um, you, it's not a trickle, it's not a trickle at all. This thing is uh, turning into, I would say a steady stream. I was about to say a flood, but then I would be biased of a field uh, that Simon, Jeff Pigman and I created. Um, uh, this new new field of sports diplomacy. Uh, I think this is something really interesting about the, the journey we've been on. Um, so we, in short, uh, we come up with an idea we wrote about it a lot. We reified uh, that idea in journal articles, and uh, the Hague Journal was central uh, to that in 2013. And subsequently, I might add as well, uh, the Hague, Hague Journal of Diplomacy has produced some excellent pieces in sports and other types of new diplomacy. Um, and what, what we then did was we, we started talking to people in government about this idea. Really easy, invite them to a sports match, uh, form a a bromance in my case with some diplomats and off off you go built on sport putting the theory into practice there's there's nothing uh, like sport to open doors so we then in australia certainly we we translated that into the world's first sports diplomacy strategy that was launched in 2015 that was followed by a second strategy uh, that was launched 2019 this is a, a government strategy on sports diplomacy, just as we would have one in public or digital diplomacy. Um, it's growing in practice. We have uh, the European Commission has a sports diplomacy group. UNESCO has recently elected a chair of sports diplomacy. Spain has a policy, Croatia is developing a policy. If you think about Croatia, um, you know, the probably, I would say one of the only good things that's got going for it, well, tourism, of course, Game of Thrones uh, and uh, sport, that, that football team. So there's there's lots of investment in it. We're, we've recently uh, done some work with the British Council. Uh, we're writing a report on Wales as a subnational government in the United Kingdom, uh, how it can use sport um, to boost international trade, uh, branding and so on. We launched uh, last week um, a, a huge uh, MOOC, Massive Online Open Course, with Australian government, Commonwealth Secretariat, and Sport and Devorg, And That was on sport and development and, uh, for peace. Uh, so there was a strong diplomacy component. Uh, we're doing work with Australia-Korea uh, Foundation, Australian-Korea Diplomats. So we are, this thing is going uh, bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know why? It's a really, really simple reason. Uh, everyone wants to get an afternoon at a sporting event. Uh, myself included. It's really why I do this stuff, is just to get free tickets to sports events. Um, <laughs> uh, it's it's the greatest sale. If you can say to people, why don't you come and watch Formula One for the afternoon? We'll have some lunch. We'll do some work uh, and then we'll we'll hang out. Um, and it's that, that idea of the informal sports summit, if you like, um, that is very, very powerful, very, very attractive uh, to businesses, to government, to individuals. And that's just the elite level. We can, we can go from grassroots sports diplomacy as the EU is investing in uh, through to club diplomacy, sports people as ambassadors, governments. Uh, the one we didn't talk about is the, the bad stuff of sports diplomacy. We have to accept that the, between 1972 and 2013, there were 182 uh, sport terrorist-related incidents. So it's a, it's a very, very complex area, Ellen. And I think you used an expression earlier, we're just, we're just scratching the surface of it. It's fascinating, I encourage anyone, including yourself, um, if you, you want to do some work on it, if you've got any ideas, uh, go and do it. You know, you've all these tools at your disposal. Study people like Colin Kaepernick or Megan Rapinoe. Study their power, create something new. We, we really, really need to do something very, very different and we need to do it very quickly and sport is the it's the white knight nobody nobody can be against it uh they can try and um, but geez good luck to you
0: wow okay that's a that's an insp- inspirational finish and i i think i, I think i ought to, to alter uh my career path i think that's you're right there's there's a lot to be untapped there um uh, for people coming from all ba- backgrounds and disciplines obviously as a result of the universality of sport right so i think uh i think you've given us a great lay of the land on sports diplomacy. And obviously, yeah, for those who are interested, uh, there is enough out there. Obviously, even the, the special issue from 2013 on, on the, the Hague Journal of Diplomacy and all the other uh, things around it, as you mentioned. Um, and I think especially with sports diplomacy, at least I've noticed that um, it's not so much the things that are formally written about it that, that are worth exploring, but also once you pick up on some of the basic themes and ideas, seeing exactly how you can yourself Um, throw that lens onto uh, Colin Kaepernick or uh, a modern movement and saying, okay, well, what's actually happening here? Am I just watching a football match or watching a press conference or is something larger? And uh, I think you're right. We, we, we can ourselves, I guess, be agents of that. So um, thank you so much for, you know, enlightening us on that today. It's been, it's been super exciting learning about sporting diplomacy and and been an honor to actually be able to to speak to you about it. So uh, thank you so much for your time and, and energy with us today, Stuart.
1: Thanks, Ellen. And game on, shall we say? Game on. <laughs> game on.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time.